Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm going to send again invitations to join as a panelist. People are strongly encouraged to take that. That way you can see, be seen, ask questions. We're also now live on Facebook. Thank you to anyone who is to those who are following along on Facebook. Thank you. It's good to see you. Um, as a quick note of housekeeping, we strongly encourage to keep your camera on. Please mute yourself to avoid um, cross feedback and other audio issues. If you have questions, there'll be a time to ask questions. You can also ask them in the chat. I will be monitoring them. And if you're on Facebook and you have a question, do, do throw it in the chat. The chat is monitored. You will get your chance. And without further ado, Dr. David Strickalman, good evening. Thank you, Kayla. And it's so nice to see all of you again, or to hear you, or to see your names in the chat. Um, I know you've probably listened to a lot of lectures and a lot of classes about Shabbat. So I, I'm going to try my very best to make this one a little bit different. Um, and I want to start out with uh, a problem, uh, because this class really started out with something specific that made me feel oddly uncomfortable. Um, the thing that made me feel uncomfortable was the graph in source number one. This is a graph that was originally put together by a Swiss physician named Adolf Hegler. Adolf Hegler was doing research in the 1870s. He was doing research in a, in a field that at the time was relatively new, a field uh, called uh, time motion studies, which is all about trying to figure out exactly how much energy people have and how that energy diminishes over the course of the day, over the course of the week, month, year. But basically, how do you extract the most possible energy from a human being? Um, which is obviously important if you work in a factory and you are, you know, you're, you're the boss of the factory and you want to find out how to get the most productivity out of the people who work for you as possible. So um, in the service of that, he put together this graph, which was then reprinted, and it was reprinted a number of times in the 1880s and after that, um, showing the difference between uh, the, uh, a person's energy level with Shabbat, without Shabbat, or I should say with the Sabbath and without the Sabbath, meaning Sunday in this instance, right? So you can see, you know, if you have a Sunday, you see a line where, you know, the week starts out, Monday, you're raring to go, you know, energy dips, the night comes, the next morning you have energy, but not as much and kind of your energy level, your peak energy level goes down and down and down and down and down. And then Sunday comes and you kind of shoot back up. And the same thing happens over and over again. If people don't have Sunday on the other hand, you see this wavy line just kind of going down into the, into the right. That is to say that um, uh, Adolf Hegler was making the case and many others made the case that Shabbat, that the Sabbath was an important institution because it was the way to get the most productivity out of workers as possible. Um, now here's why this may be uncomfortable. Um, the way that we talk about Shabbat changes all the time. Um, but these days, one of the most dominant metaphors that we use about Shabbat is Shabbat is a day of unplugging or Shabbat is a day to recharge, often recharge one's batteries. And when we talk about recharging your batteries on Shabbat, we're trying to say something positive about Shabbat. We're trying to say like, this is a day for you. This is a day to regenerate. What made me uncomfortable is recognizing that the exact same language that we treat as being kind of new and fresh and different and as making Shabbat in some ways radical and important is exactly the same language that is used, that has been used for a long time by American capitalists to say, actually, it's about us. It's about making sure that you can work for us better. Um, 
And this class is an attempt to square those two things. What does it mean that there is actually this kind of agreement between this notion of Shabbat, uh, uh, Shabbat as a day of unplugging as a kind of religious observance, as, a, as an attitude towards this key institution of Judaism, and at the same time, how do you think about uh, Shabbat, the, the same notion as part of a, you know, a, a, a capitalist uh, mechanism? That's the question. Um, and the question is, is it good that we have this agreement? Um, or is there something that's been co-opted around Shabbat because we have done this? So I, I think in order to answer that question, in order to think about whether the ways that we imagine Shabbat today are as being possible, or negative, as, as, I'm sorry, as being positive or negative, what we really have to do is start to get into how Shabbat is defined in relationship to the week, right? If we imagine Shabbat and the week exist um, in symbiosis as work and rest, well, there's ways in which work defines rest, right? Rest as being the absence of the thing that you are working on. And there's also ways in which rest can define work. So what we, we want to look at is what does that relationship look like with reference to Shabbat? And particularly, how much is Shabbat defined by the things that it is not? And how much is Shabbat actually saying, this is something different, there is something special happening here that is supposed to inform not just the observance of Shabbat itself, but also supposed to, for, and also supposed to um, inform the entire week. Um, Ozzy, your point, right? You don't know of any of the horn levels that wax away every seven days. I think that this is actually an important point, right? The seven day cycle. Um, there was a book recently that, uh, by David Hankin. It came out, um, I think less than a year ago. Uh, David Hinkin makes the point that there's something special about Shabbat and there's something special about the notion of a seven-day week um, in that there is really no reason whatsoever for weeks to be seven days. It doesn't correspond to any kind of biological function. It doesn't correspond to any astronomical activity. Um, it corresponds perhaps to some notion of planetary bodies, which is in fact incorrect, but the notion of a seven-day week of all the ways that we keep track of time is the one that is the most artificial. And oddly, it is the one that has achieved the greatest success and the greatest success basically without any kind of disagreement, right? You know, people argue about calendars all the time, right? Even in the Mishnah, there's disagreements about how you do the calendar. There's almost never disagreements about when Saturday is, when Sunday is, when Monday is, right? Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of agreement there. So how do we think about, um, how do we think about this, right? How do we think about the fact that we have this imposed notion of a work rest cycle um, and the work and and the work and rest are therefore related to each other? So I think in order to kind of enter into this conversation, we have to think about our modern Shabbat, but to understand our modern Shabbat, we have to understand Shabbat first as it's understood in the Torah um, and then kind of proceeding on from there to the present moment. I wanna make the argument that in the vast history um, between the Torah and now, there are kind of two big shifts that take place around the understanding of Shabbat. One takes place between the Torah, between the Bible and the rabbis, between the, uh, the Bible and the rabbinic period. The second takes place around the time of the industrial revolution. And so I want us to kind of look at that and get a sense of, of why I am making that argument. So if we're talking about Shabbat, you know, there's really no place else to start than one of the key passages in the Torah that talks about what Shabbat is and why Shabbat uh, matters. Uh, this is a part of Shemot, Perchaf. Zachorit yom Shabbat lakatsho, sheshit yamim tavod vasita kom lachtecha, biyom hashvi Shabbat lahashem elokacha, lota asa kom lacha ata ubin chavitecha, avdachava matcha vantacha vagiracha asher bisharacha. Right? Remember Shabbat, keep it holy. You should work for six days, do all the work. The seventh day is Shabbat for Hashem. Don't do any kind of work. And now I want you actually to pay attention to this list because it's going to matter in a second. 
you shouldn't do work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, your male and female servants, your animals, nor the stranger in your gates. Okay, just keep it, keep that list in mind for a second. Understanding what Shabbat is supposed to be about just using Tanakh is actually quite difficult because the ways in which Shabbat is talked about in Tanakh um, don't give you a full picture of what is supposed to be happening on that day. You do get glimpses of it. If you look in the Torah, the examples of people violating Shabbat include things like people who gather wood, people who are plowing, people who are lighting fires, people who are chopping wood, things in that ballpark. These kind of um, very simple tasks, they're often tasks that are specifically about food. Um, and it's worth knowing that, right? Because when we start thinking about the relationship between work and rest, well, one easy way to think about work is, you know, work as part of an agrarian society. So Shabbat in an agrarian society, Shabbat that is basically about either you're working to make food or you're not working to make food, that is one kind of Shabbat. And from what we can sense, that's the kind of Shabbat that is talked about in the Chumash. This changes a little bit, even as we start getting into Nevi'im and Ketuvim, right? So in Sefer Amos, there is a description of, of a problem around Shabbat where it talks, about, um, it talks about people who are trying to offer wheat for sale on Shabbat. Uh, this is in source number three, and this being a problem. So we're starting to move now from Shabbat as this kind of agricultural event to Shabbat as an event that is about commerce. Um, and this shift we're going to see ends up being quite important. Think about though what Shabbat means if you're in an environment where it's mostly about agriculture, right? The work is physically very taxing, right? It is mostly, you know, um, it's muscle work, um, but it's also work that's kind of relatively personal. It's not work that's happening on a vast scale. It's work that's often happening um, among small groups of people. And crucially, most of the work that's being done can be stopped whenever you want. Meaning there's no external reason for it to continue other than the fact that you, you know, you want to get it done as quickly as possible. So stopping work um, is, a, is a relatively simple thing to do. I should, I'm going to put in brackets here, this is talking about the work that mostly men were doing at the time. In next week's class, we're going to talk a little bit about the ways that men's work and women's work are thought about differently and are described differently. So I think for a lot of the things I'm going to say, you can kind of put an asterisk about this, that there is women's work, work that is traditionally being done by women that is not taken seriously or is not treated in the same category. That's kind of big, big comments about this entire thing. The last important thing to know, though, is that all of the work being done and all the work that is listed in source number two is work that is being done by either human muscles or animal muscles. And in terms of like the development of human civilization, this is like a specific stage, right? There's a specific stage in which if you want to get something done, if you want to move something from, you know, point A to point B, it's either human or animal muscle that does it. Very little, you know, maybe you use some kind of tool to help you, but that's basically where, where it comes from. What you do not have is any kind of machines. You do not have any kind of um, any kind of work that is being done by your environment. And that is gonna end up mattering quite a bit. Because when we move from the, from the Torah to the rabbinic period, there are a couple of really substantial changes that take place around the nature of work. One is that Jews, you know, Jews are still involved in agriculture, Jews are involved in agriculture for a long time, Jews are still involved in agriculture, um, but manufacturing, and commerce become much more important, right? We talked about last week how the rabbis imagine themselves using craft as kind of the dominant metaphor for their own work, right? So it, it matters that that becomes important as the kind of um, paradigmatic notion of work um, in, in rabbinic literature. Um, you know, you also start seeing other kinds of work, but it's mostly about craft work, it's mostly about artisanal work. That's one change. 
The second change is you start having what I'll say crudely is indirect work, right? Work that is not being done directly by a human or an animal, work that is being done by the environment. And the classic example of work being done by the environment, I'm just gonna skip forward for a second, um, is the water wheel. The water wheel is um, an invention that um, probably originates probably originates around the third century BCE. It comes to the Greco-Roman world around the first century BCE. Um, and it's initially used mostly for grain, right? So water flows, you have a current that's flowing, it turns the wheel, the wheel is attached to an axle, and the axle can, you know, you can make it do whatever you want. You can make it grind things. Um, and so you get all this work, you know, for free basically without having to exert your own, your own work, your own labor in order to achieve it. So as the rabbis, they're reading the Torah, um, and they are trying to think, what does it mean to take this notion of work, a notion of work that is mostly conceived of around an agricultural environment, and to then apply it to a totally different kind of work? And that is a, a complicated and difficult task. And as we, as we saw last week, it's a task that the rabbis, you know, they really step up to the plate on this one. This is a situation where there is a huge amount of rabbinic creativity exerted around thinking through how do I imagine a work in an environment where um, the kinds of work that I'm doing are incredibly varied, um, but it also is, is important to, to enumerate them, to actually describe them in detail, because if you don't describe them in detail, then what ends up happening is you have this kind of blurry boundary between things that are work and things that are not work. So it's actually an important task. And this is a task that the rabbis kind of, you know, they really go to work on it. Um, you know, the place, the kind of the most famous place where they do this is in source number four. This is Mishnah Shabbat. Um, uh, seven, um, the first two missioning out of it. I'm sorry, my face. Excuse me. So in the first two missioning out here, you have this kind of really grand notion of how work is thought about around Shabbat and the forbidden kinds of work. So in the second Mishnah, that's the second paragraph here, right? The Mishnah lays out 39 different categories of work. One thing that's interesting about this, just as a kind of parenthetical, but I think it's important, is that the way that the Mishnah lays out these 39 categories of work is more complicated than it seems. Many people have pointed out that these 39 categories, first of all, they don't cover every kind of labor that people are doing in society, even, at, even in the time. They're mostly focused around activities like um, you know, clothing, making bread, um, it's, it's not, a, or making leather, it's not a full description of all, of all labor. But beyond that, in, even in other parts of this same Mesechet, in other parts of Mesechet Shabbat and the Mishnah, you already have descriptions of other kinds of work that seem to be missing from this list. So there's something strange going on here. Um, I want to explain this using interpretation that um, I understand from, um, from Judith Hauptman, uh, Professor Judith Hauptman and tries to make the argument that actually what's going on here is there's a kind of conversation happening between the first two Mishnah here, where the first Mishnah in this um, first Mishnah here is introducing an important concept. First Mishnah here is talking about, um, I'll just read it to, to give you a sense of it. I'm going to read just the, the highlighted part because that's an important piece. Shabbat. Um, one who knows that it's Shabbat, but you do many different kinds of work on many different Shabbatot. You are responsible to give a separate sacrifice for each and every um, 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 that you do, every kind of category of work that you do. Um, Professor Hauptman makes the argument that the word av there is actually a later addition. It should be al kol malacha malacha. We'll understand why that matters in a second. 
someone who does a main if you do several kinds of work, but they're all kind of part of one, you know, class of work, uh, a class of activity, then you only need to give one sacrifice. So this Mishnah kind of introduces this concept that the way that you are penalized for breaking Shabbat depends on whether the kinds of activities that you're doing are varied or whether they are all around the same. Um, what Professor Hauptman kind of points out is that this mission is attempting to, um, to be lenient. It's attempting to say, you know what, maybe you did this, all these violations, but if we can find a way to take a bunch of the things that you did and say, well, they're all part of one activity that you're trying to do, then we're actually gonna reduce your, your punishment as a result of that. What the next mission is doing is then taking this leniency and totally exploding it by saying, oh, you, First Mishnah, you are interested in creating these categories of work so that people don't have to give as many sacrifices. Well, I'm gonna take your concept of categories of work. I'm gonna make every single category so small and so um, narrow in, its, um, in the way that it is defined that you will find your, your categories are actually several. So, you know, our categories are not going to be things like baking bread. Baking bread is not a category. Instead, baking bread is plowing and winnowing and threshing and eating, like all those different things. Each of them is its own category. This is a way of kind of exploding that idea. But in the process, and this is what's important here, in the process of trying to um, open up and expand this idea of what is forbidden on Shabbat, you end up creating these lists of different kinds of activity that are forbidden. Um, and these lists are incredibly important. Right? These lists help us think through the specific activities, like the kind of visceral actions that my body can take or not take that would change, that would, that would, be, that would be a violation or not be a violation. So that matters a lot. What's curious here, though, is that even the list itself, um, in, understood in the context of this tractate, is not perfect. Um, and the list itself has, you know, at, there are other missionaries that, that say things that are not in this list. And the reason for that is obviously there's no possible way to encompass, you know, to, um, to talk about all kinds of human labor. There's just too many different things that human beings do, even though the effort is important, even though the, class, the classification attempt is important. To give you a sense of how difficult this is, I want you to think for a second. Imagine that you know that there are 39 categories of forbidden labor on Shabbat, but you don't know what they are. And now I say to you, okay, you know there's 39 of them. They're supposed to um, prohibit all work go tell me what they are that is a hard thing to do it's a really hard thing to do um and i know it's a hard thing to do because someone actually had that task um so a source that i i love to teach alongside uh, mishnah shabbat is this really um really one of a kind source from the 10th century uh, this is a source not by a jewish scholar but by a muslim scholar a muslim scholar who is trying for complicated reasons that I don't want to get into now, he's trying very hard to understand what Shabbat is, what Jewish law is. And he's trying to write for the, for the benefit of other Muslim scholars, as good of a description as he can of Jewish law. He gets some of it right, he gets some of it wrong. But part of it is he is aware somewhere, we don't know exactly how, but he somehow found out that there's 39 categories of labor. But curiously, he seems to not quite know what they are. And so he is trying very hard to figure out what those categories of labor are without knowing what they are. Here's what he ends up with. This is source number five. He says, um, there are 39 kinds of work. His name, by the way, Al-Makdasi is connected to um, Mikdash, Beit Mikdash, probably because he lives in Jerusalem. There are 39 categories of work. Anyone who performs one of them on Shabbat or on the night of Shabbat is deserving of death. Plowing the earth, okay, good. 
sowing the earth, harvesting crops, channeling water to crops, churning butter, milking, chopping wood, lighting a fire, kneading dough, baking bread, sewing garments, weaving thread, writing two letters, capturing game, slaughtering animals, leaving the village, conveying an object from place to place, selling, buying, beating a garment for the purpose of whitening, grinding, collecting firewood, cutting cheese, pounding meat, and fixing a sandal when it breaks, and mixing animal feed. I would say 70%. He does a fairly decent job of understanding it, but what's important is that he understands that there is a structure to the way that Jewish people observe Shabbat, and the structure is it is all organized around these categories of forbidden work. Meaning, to go back to the point um, that I raised at the beginning, if you think about it, is Shabbat defined by work or is Shabbat defined by rest? At least in these rulings, in these halachot, Shabbat is very, very much defined by rest. It is very, very much around the things that you are not doing. That is extremely well-defined and an extremely well-developed um, uh, part of Jewish law. But even as this is happening, even as the rabbis are developing this extremely complex um, uh, set of principles around observing Shabbat, they're also pretty aware that there's other ways of thinking about Shabbat as well. And there's ways that you can understand the point of Shabbat that go beyond any kind of categorization. And one of the best places you can see this is by thinking about the way that they, that they talk about water wheels. They talk about this notion of indirect work. Now, to kind of set this up for a second, there is a way in which you can imagine that the concept of a water wheel would be kind of like earth shattering for, um, for rabbis. You have a pasuk in the Torah, just to go back to this for a second. You have a pasuk that says this list of things that cannot do work, right? It's basically people and animals. And all of a sudden, there is this entire new category of objects that can do work. And you can imagine the rabbis trying to negotiate, like, how do I understand this category, this new category of work in relation to this pasuk? Is it in this pasuk or is it not? That's like, that's a big deal. Because the Torah doesn't say that your machines can't work. It just says that people and animals can't work. So the rabbis have that possibility. They have the option of, of having a kind of principled stand against the use of machines on Shabbat. And at initially, it seems like they're going down that route, saying, yes, people can't work, animals can't work, machines can't work. You see this in, um, in the Tosefta, in Tosefta for Shabbat. I should say, by the way, that this, this reference to water wheels that we're about to read is one of the very first references we have to water wheels in any literature anywhere, um, at least in the, in the Middle East. So this is pretty early. Um, the, the Tosefta is talking about different ways in which people... Um, I'm sorry, I should say different kinds of activities that you can initiate before Shabbat. And so work is done for you on Shabbat, right? So to give an example, right? So the initial example here is Potkin Mayan Shabbat, Im Shabbat, right? You can open, you can kind of set up water on a course such that you're not doing the watering on Shabbat, but the water is going to go and, and water your crops or water your garden on Shabbat. Or so second example, right? Notnim kilor la'ayin, right? You can have some kind of salve on your eye that, you know, the work is not being done before Shabbat. The work is being done on Shabbat. You simply apply the salve before Shabbat, right? All these kinds of examples. But then at the end of this Mishnah, we get to the water wheel. And here, um, just look in the, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew, the second last line, three words from the end. Um, you don't put wheat in a mill, uh, a, a mill of the, a water a water wheel, a water mill. 
unless you um if your if your purpose is to grind it um and then unless that grinding is going to be done before shabbat begins right meaning as opposed to all the other examples in this mishnah in which a person is allowed to do these activities that are mostly going to be enacted on shabbat for water meals specifically for water meals specifically it's not allowed right seems like okay we're developing a notion about how machine work is supposed to be done in shabbat when the Talmud approaches this, though, they kind of explode that notion because they go in an entirely different direction. What's the reason that you cannot do, you cannot use water wheels on Shabbat? Why? Rabbi says, because it makes noise. It just makes noise. Now, it's not the only possibility. There is another opinion here. Rabbi Yosef said to him, why not say it's because of the principle of resting of utensils, right? Shvitat kelim, shvitat kelim. For it's taught, right, observe everything that I've instructed you to do. This is to include the resting of utensils. Rather, Rav Yosef said, because of the resting of utensils, which Tana says the resting of utensils is a biblical precept, why don't we follow this opinion that the Shvitat Kelim, the resting of utensils, is the reason why you can't use a water wheel on Shabbat? Oh, it's Beit Shammai, not Beit Hillel. So because it's Beit Shammai, we don't follow that opinion. According to Beit Shammai, the use of utensils on Shabbat is forbidden, whether utensils actively working or not. According to Beit Hillel, it's permitted to use utensils even if they perform an action. So what's fascinating here is the rabbis have this concept of um, shvitat kelim. They have a concept that um, perhaps all machine work is prohibited. And you should know, by the way, the word kelim, to talk, uh, talk about water wheels, even gives you a little bit of an insight into how new this is, right? Like imagine the word kelim being used to talk about everything from like a computer to a fork, right? There's, there's not, there isn't yet the language because this is a new kind of device to talk about this as a new kind of machine, a machine that gets work done for you, that allows water to be a source of energy for you. They have this possibility, but they reject it. And instead, they choose what seems at the outset to be a kind of strange rationale, which is that it's just too noisy. What I think is going on here is actually something very sophisticated. What is going on here is this kind of negotiation between the rabbis, the emerging technologies, and the notion of Shabbat, in which they are trying to think not just kind of categorically which kinds of work should and should not be permitted, but they're also thinking like, what is Shabbat supposed to feel like? What is Shabbat literally, what is Shabbat supposed to sound like? Um, you know, water wheels really are noisy. We have complaints from the Middle Ages, you know, and we have complaints from Englishmen from the Middle Ages saying like, water wheels are so loud, I hate this sound. So they're not making this up. Water wheels actually are very loud. But the idea here is that the notion of what Shabbat is, we see in this text, is not simply coming from the outside. Shabbat is not simply being defined by its negatives. It is also being defined in terms of what we want Shabbat to sound like. And here specifically, we want Shabbat to be quiet. We want Shabbat to be quiet, which is like the kind of thing that you wouldn't think about until the possibility of Shabbat being loud presents itself. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh yes, my understanding of Shabbat, the understanding that I've grown up with is a Shabbat that is actually a quiet Shabbat. And so the rabbis have that notion here. So you see in the ways that the rabbis think about um, kind of categorizing um, commercial activity and the, and the ways that they categorize indirect labor, that you have this kind of push and pull between thinking about Shabbat in terms of work and thinking about Shabbat in terms of rest. Both of them exist. But even as both of them exist, I want to say the work part is the one that probably you've heard about more. The work part is the one that gets more play, in part because it's easier to define, right? It's easier to say the things that you shouldn't do on Shabbat than the things you should do on Shabbat. And you see this again 
as um, as Jews are observing Shabbat and are trying to understand, okay, well, what am I actually supposed to do with all this time that I'm not working? And it turns out that the things they do in Shabbat are incredibly varied. Um, and there isn't really a kind of um, a single answer ever to what you're supposed to do in Shabbat. Is it okay to heal people on Shabbat? Is it okay to play sports on Shabbat? Um, are you supposed to be spending, you are supposed to be learning Torah on Shabbat? These kinds of conversations show up all the time. I want to just show you a couple of examples of where this plays out. One is in source number nine in the Truman edition. Truman edition is a kind of classic 14th century um, German, um, German, uh, German authority. German edition, I'll just gonna read the translation, which is not the entirety of the Hebrew text here, <clears throat> is trying to play through, play out the ways that people are observing Shabbat in his time and in his part of Germany. He says, it's forbidden to speak as excessively as one does during the week, all the more so to do so more than one does during the week. So you shouldn't speak so much on Shabbat. Again, quiet. Nonetheless, if people enjoy speaking and telling tales about kings and princes and their wars, as many people love to do, still, still do today, it seems it is certainly permissible. For Yitzchak of Corbet wrote similarly that young men who get pleasure from running and jumping are allowed to do so. Similarly, it is permissible to watch anything that one gets pleasure from watching. We see from here that even though the sages derive from the verse that one should not run and jump, it is nonetheless permissible to do so if one does it for pleasure and fulfillment of desire. So like, yeah, you shouldn't do it, but you know, if that's the way that you have owning Shabbat, if that's the way that you have enjoyment of Shabbat, okay, maybe it's okay then. So there, again, this kind of negotiation is taking place. What's even more fascinating is the idea that I think is already embedded here, that the way that people experience Shabbat, the kinds of things that people should be doing on Shabbat, change depending on who you are, right? Maybe it's appropriate for you know, young people to be running and jumping and playing sports on Shabbat. It's not appropriate for everybody to be doing that. Um, this, I think, is so beautifully illustrated in the next source. Um, Ramadan Iri, kind of writing about what Shabbat is supposed to be like. He says, Mitzvah onak Shabbat ad ma'od, nahi, if you run a marathon on Shabbat. That's a good question, right? I, th I think that's like a key question here, right? If you leave aside all the questions about, about Eru, if you leave aside the questions, uh, you know, is that permissible? I think that's like an active and totally appropriate question um, given, given the way that Shabbat ends up being defined, given how much of it is defined in terms of what it's not, right? <clears throat> okay, so Menachem Iri says, right, the Mitzvah on Shabbat is, Incredibly important. Right. So Shabbat is defined in terms of the things that you regularly do, the things that are kind of common for you specifically. Right, you should make your Shabbat like a weekday. It's better to make your Shabbat like a weekday than to be dependent on other people. Right, meaning your Shabbat should be your own Shabbat. It's he's using it in a slightly different way than it's intended in the original context. And then the key part is he says, it says, right? How do you have um, you know how do you have owning Shabbat? One person says through sleep, one person says through Talmud Torah. This seems like a disagreement. That's those are very different things. Is Shabbat supposed to be about sleeping or is it supposed to be about Talmud Torah? Below Pligi, no, they're not, they're not actually disagreeing. Kan Talmid, Kan One of them is talking about how a Talmid Chacham, how a learned person does Shabbat. One of them is talking about how anybody else does Shabbat, someone who is not spending their entire week learning, how, how their Shabbat should look like. Parashobah Rabbi, um, Rabbi Tai, 
Right. So his, you should say, the interpretation that he received from this is that, oh, what does that mean? That one person celebrates Shabbat with learning Torah and one does it with sleep? Oh, that must mean that a Talmud Chacham spends Shabbat learning more Torah. And a Balabait, someone who's not spending their week learning Torah, should spend their Shabbat also not learning Torah. They should just spend their Shabbat sleeping. And he has an interesting explanation, right? He says, It's actually the opposite, right? Someone who is learning the entire week, someone who's learning the entire week actually should spend their Shabbat sleeping, right? Because that is a way that they can kind of relax their mind. They are not, they're kind of like mind is not overheating, so to speak. But someone who spends their entire week doing, you know, totally uh, mundane things, for them, Onag Shabbat is learning Torah. And what's curious is, is both the fact that Meiri can understand that different people have different notions of Onag Shabbat, but also that even within that, there is this kind of basic disagreement between him and his teachers about what that's supposed to look like, meaning like, Okay, at the end of the day, should the Talmud Chacham be learning Torah on Shabbat or not? There is a huge amount of disagreement about this. And there kind of continues to be a huge amount of disagreement about this. This doesn't go away. Um, this notion of what Shabbat is supposed to be, what Shabbat is supposed to look like, continues. This brings us to the second shift. If the first shift is taking us from the Torah to the Talmud, from the notion of mostly agricultural work to um, more um, artisanal work, more craft work, and also the use of indirect work, use of water wheels. The second shift takes place around you know, 250 years ago, around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. There's a few things happening here. One is that the nature of work starts to change. Work is now continuous. For many factories, there is no reason to stop working ever. You can work all the time. And this is you know, still true today in many factories, right? Um, you know, I recently have done some work um, you know, uh, creating art objects with some factories in China. And when I asked them, you know, how often, you know, how, you know, how many days is this gonna take? They'll say like, oh, there's just people working here all the time. Like there's just different shifts, but no one ever leaves. Um, there's a kind of continuous notion of work. That's a piece of it. When you have a notion that work is continuous, the question of when you stop work takes on a different meaning because you actually have a lot of um, flexibility in terms of how you define work when it could theoretically go on forever, right? The stoppages matter more. And as you may know, right, there's a huge number of disagreements of uh, fights, often very vicious, often bloody in the 19th century between workers and, um, you know, and factory owners around what limits should be placed on work, um, both in terms of the hours that people should work the kinds of places, the kind of safeties that should, that should take place, this never stops, right? You have similar kinds of questions going on around Amazon, around you know how often should, be, should people be allowed to go to the bathroom during a shift? These questions are kind of ubiquitous now, right? This is what it means to work. It's to ask yourself, when do I stop? Because actually, a lot of the time, I don't ever need to stop. That's a piece of it. And the second piece of it is the notion of rest starts to become a lot more complicated. Because the notion of rest is no longer just, you know, I'm so exhausted for my week, I'm going to just spend 
the rest of my time lying in bed, you know, exerting as little effort as possible, trying to regain strength for another grueling six days, it instead is now about leisure, about recreation, right? It's about, do you spend the day at the beach? Do you play games with your friends? You know, do you, do you visit somewhere? Do you, you know, do you ride your bicycle, which is just recently invented in the 19th century? Um, all of these things explode this notion of rest into rest, and now also this new thing called leisure, and this big question that looms over many, many um, parts of the world, especially America, of what is the difference between rest and leisure, and which one of them is the appropriate thing to do on, on Shabbat. Now, what's, one of the things that's interesting here is, you know, there's obviously there's a Christian Sabbath and there's a Jewish Shabbat. And very often those notions are kind of like they're off doing different things. There's a way in which in the 19th century, those conversations kind of come much closer together, um, in part because uh, just the way that America was founded, right, the, the Puritan influence on American culture meant that the notion of, of Sabbatarianism, the notion that you were supposed to rest on the seventh day of the week, and actually that that is like basically the only important marker of the calendar year, right? Like we don't care about Christmas, we don't care about anything else, we just care about the Sabbath, means that for a long time in America, there are many laws, there are still laws today around, um, around activity, around especially commerce on Sundays. Now, I'll just, I'll show you, um, because it's, it's so wonderful, this uh, bulletin from the New York Sabbath Committee um, from 1914, the caption, it's, it's quite small. The caption says, don't kill the tree that shades you. The tree says Sabbath rest, right? You should not, you should not, the Shabbat is so important. The Sabbath is so important. Why would you get rid of this institution by, you know, having mail on Sundays? Why would you get rid of the institution by allowing streetcars to operate on Sundays? And so in the 19th century, there are many, many debates within American society about uh, what kinds of work uh, should be allowed on, on Sundays, especially what kinds of government work should be allowed on Sundays. Now, eventually, a lot of the kind of more, um, more stringent um, you know, blue laws end up being struck down. There are in the late 19th century, many, many cities across the United States and also in Canada a little bit that basically say like streetcars are not allowed to run on Sundays. Um, both horse-drawn horse streetcars and then also electric streetcars, neither one you can run on Sundays. Eventually, basically all of those laws are struck down by the Supreme Court. So there's a way in which actually because of the way that um, the Sabbath as a Christian institution, as an institution of the majority ends up being litigated, litigated and kind of loses, there's a kind of um, divergence again between the Jewish notion of the Sabbath and the Christian notion of the Sabbath in part because the Christian notion, Christian notion of the Sabbath is kind of legislated away. And so while it still does exist, right? There are people who, you know, th there are certainly many Christians in America who, you know, treat Sunday as kind of like a day to stay home, not a day to go out, you know, like you don't go to a play, you don't go to a movie, you just stay home, you're with, you know, you're with your family, you go to church, like that's what it is. For, you know, the most, most of America it has ceased being that and it ceased being that a long time ago. But I, I'm raising this all to say that there is this larger conversation that both Jews and Christians in America are having around what this notion of industrialized work is doing to their Shabbat. Um, and this has huge implications for the way that Shabbat itself is being conceived of. Because once you start thinking about Shabbat as a kind of forceful extraction from a machine that never stops, Shabbat is like a conscious decision to halt a machine that never wants to be halted, that becomes a really powerful symbol of what Shabbat's supposed to be. 
And I think in some ways, we're so used to thinking about Shabbat in that way, like Shabbat as unplugging, the Shabbat as this kind of like forceful cessation of labor, that we don't even realize how much of this notion is being, is owed to this industrialization of the workplace. The place where you see this the most, uh, I, I think the way, the way, the place that has made this, um, I should say, uh, the most influential of all um, is in uh, Abram Joshua Heschel's The Sabbath. Um, I should say for a second, it's, it's hard to kind of overemphasize how influential um, The Sabbath has been. It's almost certainly the most uh, reprinted of all of Heschel's books. Um, I spoke to the publisher recently about this. The book is like 71 years old at this point. Um, it was reprinted in the 90s. In the last 15 years alone, the, the Sabbath has um, was printed, I'm sorry, the Sabbath uh, uh, sold 100,000 copies and has been translated into like 13 or 14 languages. It is an incredibly successful book. It's like, you know, if you look on Amazon of like the, the top Jewish books and you kind of, you know, you take out the messianic ones, which shouldn't be there in the first place, and you take out all the liturgical texts, the Sidarim, the Chumashim, basically there's two books that show up as being incredibly popular. One is Victor Frankl's Man in Search of Meaning, and the second is Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Sabbath. So this is a really powerful book. This is a really popular book. And, you know, one of the things that people know a lot about the way that Heschel thinks about Shabbat is Shabbat as being a kind of a palace in time. And that Shabbat that Jews care about the way that time is delineated, that Jews uniquely care about whether about how time is delineated. We, you know, we don't need to talk now about whether that's correct or incorrect. Um, but there's a second piece of Heschel's description of Shabbat that I think gets underappreciated. And I wanted to show you a short passage from the, from the Sabbath to understand exactly what I'm talking about. So in the Sabbath, source number 13, Heschel says, <clears throat> to set apart one day a week for freedom, a day in which we would not use the instruments which have been so easily turned into weapons of destruction. A day being with ourselves, a day of detachment from the vulgar, of independence of external obligations, a day on which we stop worshiping the idols of technical civilization, a day on which we use no money, a day of armistice and the economic struggle with our fellow men and the forces of nature. Is there any institution that holds out a greater hope for man's progress than the Sabbath? In regard to external gifts, to outward possessions, there is only one proper attitude to have them and to be able to do without them. On the Sabbath, we live as it were independent of technical civilization. We abstain primarily from any activity that aims at remaking or reshaping the things of space. Man's loyal privilege to conquer nature is suspended on the seventh day. What are the kinds of labor not to be done on the Sabbath? They are, according to the ancient rabbis, all those acts which were necessary for the construction and furnishing of the sanctuary in the desert. The Sabbath itself is a sanctuary which we built, a sanctuary in time. <clears throat> One of the things that's kind of that's noteworthy here is the phrase that Heschel uses twice, technical civilization. This is a new concept, right? Shabbat is not just about not working. <clears throat> it's about a kind of stance against a certain understanding of human civilization. And this is a feature of Shabbat that comes in, it's not just about the Industrial Revolution, it's specifically about America. Because in America, what happens is that Shabbat is not just about um, continuous work. There is also a notion that the work itself is all um, collectively, nationally, moving towards some furtherance of humankind. That work itself is not just kind of a thing you do because you need, you know, you need to eat. It's a thing that you do because 
humankind itself is developing, is growing, is turning to something different. And this notion that there is a kind of constant progress and that work is an integral piece of that progress, that's the technical civilization that Heschel is talking about. And that technical civilization is, in his mind, um, I should say, that the te technical civilization in his mind is something that you're trying to remove yourself from on Shabbat, right? So what's important to understand here, I think, is that Heschel's notion of Shabbat is not just kind of, you know, um, needs to be understood not just in terms of the Industrial Revolution, but also needs to be understood specifically in terms of America uh, and in terms of the way that Americans understand their own work uh, and the importance of their own work. Um, that's really crucial. So here we've arrived, you know, it's funny, like Heschel, Heschel's work is 70 years old, but in some ways I feel like um, a lot of the ways that Heschel thinks about Shabbat are ways that we today um, continue to think about Shabbat. The question though, to return back to the question that I raised at the beginning is, is this a Shabbat that is mostly defined by the things that Shabbat is supposed to be about, this, um, or Shabbat defined in terms of work? Is Shabbat still defined in terms of work? And what I want to suggest is that even in Heschel, you still get the sense that Shabbat, even though that notion of work is very, very different, it's not just, you know, working in your field, it's now, you know, technical civilization, it is still primarily about work and about the absence of work. And there's something kind of we need to be cautious about in that moment. Because when you think about Shabbat in terms of the absence of work, and when you observe Shabbat, being conscious of the fact that you are removing yourself for one day from that work, but then are about to go back into that work for the rest of the six days, you are often quietly, maybe unintentionally, endorsing that notion of work. I'm sorry, my throat's very parts as you can hear. I'm just gonna take a second to drink something. <clears throat> you are taking this notion of, of work, you're taking this notion of work and you're using it to still imagine Shabbat. And that's fine as long as the notion of work that you have is a healthy one. If the notion of work you have is not healthy, if you live in a culture in which there is a problem with the way the work is understood, there is a way, if you were living in a culture where people are regularly complaining about work um, taking over their lives, um, if you're living in a culture in which there is regular exploitation of workers um, by, um, by owners, then you start being in a situation where Shabbat can become problematic. Problematic not in itself, but problematic in the sense that you don't want to be in a situation where you are quietly endorsing a notion of work, which is itself inherently problematic. And so there's a kind of cautious thing that needs to happen here. It's important for Shabbat to be understood as being a kind of foil for work, but it's also important for Shabbat to have an identity in and of itself. Um, and because of that, one of the things I think that's important for us to do in the 21st century, um, as our notions of work, and, and I'm sure they will continue to change as automation continues and all that, um, is to make sure we don't lose out on that internal lived communal sense of what Shabbat is actually supposed to be for. Because just as work can define Shabbat, Shabbat can define work. And imagine what it would be to live in a world 
were work is defined by Shabbat. Work is defined by the things that you do when you are not working. What life is supposed to be like under those circumstances. Um, that I think is a powerful thing. And that's something which um, communities kind of have felt their way towards for a long time. In the same way that you know, the rabbis kind of instinctively understand that having water wheels on Shabbat is a bad idea because it's too noisy. I think we too, um, you know, develop notions of what Shabbat is supposed to be like, even as the, the things that Shabbat is a, is a refuge from are changing all the time. Shabbat in this way is really kind of like on the forefront of, of our culture. Um, you know, I used, to, I used to produce a podcast called Responsa Radio for Mahon Hadar, um, and I did a graph at one point of the first like 50 or 60 episodes, and literally half of them are about Shabbat. And the reason they have them are about Shabbat is because whenever a new technology comes on the scene, you can always ask about that technology, is this allowed on Shabbat or not? So Shabbat is never going to be like a kind of quiet area of halakha. It's always going to be at the forefront of something. Um, and so because of that, our, we are kind of constantly need to ask ourselves what Shabbat is supposed to be about um, and what kind of Shabbat we want to live. And those are things that which I think we can't um, answer um, simply by looking at, well, what is work and let's do the opposite of that. There's some kind of internal sense. What's interesting is that internal sense is, is, um, is both very precious and also very sophisticated. Um, I think we often don't realize how big of a deal it is that uh, you can have a day out of the week when not only do you not have to use your smartphone, but the communal pressure to use smartphones diminishes itself. The communal pressure to use technology is itself diminished. There are you know, people who work for Facebook, there are people who work for Google, you know, who spend six days developing the most sophisticated software on the planet, and then one day of the week, they don't use any of it. I think we often don't appreciate how big of a deal it is to have that, um, to have those communal institutions. And there's a way in which Shabbat, I think, in the 21st century, is going to serve not just a kind of as a kind of refuge from the week, but also as a kind of rare, vital experiment in what life could be like if we don't choose the path that you know new technology set out for us if we choose instead of a different path, to imagine a civilization that can live without those things. Um, that's a powerful thing to be, to be a kind of petri dish for this. Um, one thing that's important to note as part of that, Ozzy, to, to respond to your point about half Shabbat, is that the ways in which people observe Shabbat are not always identical. You know, there are people who observe Shabbat in ways that are kind of like not strictly halachic, but I wanna say that actually, even while that's the case, there is still a kind of spectrum. There is still a kind of respect for the notion of what Shabbat is supposed to be, even as the way that people make choices about what should or should not be part of that Shabbat change depending on the community. Here I think, and this is the last thing I'll say, it's actually useful to, to use an example outside of, of Judaism to understand exactly what Shabbat is doing here. Um, you know, if Heschel is talking about Shabbat as an institution in time, there is a kind of Shabbat that serves as, that works as an institution in space. That institution is Amish communities. Um, just outside of Philadelphia uh, is Lancaster County. I live in Philadelphia. Um, and I, I've spent some time there trying to understand the way that Amish people think about, um, think about, uh, about technology, about work, about their lives. Um, and one thing that I've come to understand about the way that they, they, they think about new technologies is they do something which actually, if you like, live within a Jewish community, sounds, will sound kind of familiar to you. Um, there was a, a time when I, I went into this Amish person's house and you know, throughout the house, I expected to see you know, gas lanterns on the walls. And instead of seeing gas lanterns on the walls, 
there were LEDs, LED lamps, just battery powered LED lamps. Now, at first glance, you might think like, wait a minute, my notion of like Amish communities suggests that that is not what should be part of an Amish community. That's electricity. I thought electricity was not okay. But it is okay. And it's okay because it's not connected to a grid. It's unobtrusive. Um, and I think most importantly, for many Amish people, it doesn't feel like a violation. It doesn't feel wrong. And so there is a kind of acceptability of that because there is a and kind of internal sense of we know how we want to live. Because we know how we want to live, we can negotiate um, different technologies around that. I think something similar happens around Shabbat in that there is this kind of constant negotiation around what Shabbat is supposed to be. Um, and that negotiation, I think, will remain incredibly important and vital for years to come. Uh, it's only eight minutes left, so I'm going to stop here and leave time for questions. Thank you. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think you, I, I came a little bit late, but did you start the Shior off asking, like, why Shabbat was seven days? Uh, no, I didn't actually talk about why seven specifically. Um, you know, there is, a, you know, uh, there's an interesting coincidence, I have to say, um, around the seven day week where, you know, it both exists within the Torah, right? It's about, you know, Hashem making the world in six days and then resting on the seventh day. The Romans have a kind of parallel institution that is based off uh, the planets, basically, about the sun, the moon, and then, you know, five visible planets. And so the Romans come up with a seven-day week. Their seven-day week is not about rest whatsoever. It's about just kind of distinguishing days uh, in the way that, you know, people distinguish between zodiac signs, like, oh, like, you're an Aries, you're a Virgo. So, like, they're imagining the week in a similar way, and that it's a kind of it's a, a way of thinking about the character of different days of the week. Um, at some point, probably around the first century BCE, those two notions of the day kind of merge. Um, so they're both kind of seven days. Um, one is about wet rest, one is not, and they kind of um, move together. Lots of people around the world observe uh, seven day weeks. Not all of them have rest as part of them. Um, what is the significance of having it be on Saturday rather than on Sunday. Because we've, we've had a lot of trouble, particularly in the early part of our immigration to the United States, of, of people, you know, have off Sunday, but they, you know, have forced to work on Saturday. And it's a terrible thing. What is the, how big a significance is the fact that it happens, it rather, not only that it's every seven day, but Dafka, which day it is? And how do we know that that's really Shabbos? Yeah, it matters quite a bit. I don't, I don't think I have a great answer for you for, for how we know it. I think part of it, um, as with, you know, as with many things um, between Judaism and Christianity is about, you know, differentiation, right? Um, just like as a point of comparison, right? You know, um, there's a time at which uh, um, uh, Passover and Easter will sometimes, used to sometimes fall on the same day. And the church basically constructed the Christian calendar such that that never ever happens again, right? Um, there's an attempt to kind of uh, distinguish this way of keeping track of time from Jewish ways of keeping track of time. So I think that's a piece of it. Actually, they do happen at the same time regularly because it's, right. it's a lunar. Seder. Seder Easter is a lunar, is a lunar holiday. Yeah, right. So there's a parts of them can overlap. Um, how do you uh, how you say more about defining uh, work by rest rather than rest by not working? Sure. Um, 
we spend so much of our lives working, it's sometimes hard to imagine what we would be spending our time with if it was not that. And sometimes when we're not working, we're so exhausted that, you know, we're just spending our time recovering, meaning like we're not actually imagining um, what we want to be spending our time on. We're just doing something in the service of helping ourselves so that we can then go back to work the next day. Um, that is life being defined by work. The notion of what it would mean for Shabbat to define work instead is to say, like, forget about that for a second. Forget about the things that work tells you you're supposed to do. What is actually, what are you supposed to be doing with your time? Like, it's, it's, it's a really powerful question, actually. What are you supposed to be doing with your time? What, what, is, what is life for? Um, and based on that notion, that kind of positive notion of what you want to be doing with your time, not the negative notion of what do you do when you're not working, you can then develop a, a philosophy of life which perhaps involves work, but involves it not from a place of this is what I have to do. This is like the kind of the thing that comes first, but it's simply a piece of something larger. I think personally there's something much healthier about that, of understanding worth work as a kind of a piece of one's life um, and not the defining element of it. Um, and I think Shabbat is a, a crucial piece of, of, of imagining that. And I think specifically imagining Shabbat as more than just kind of that day of unplugging, that day of not work, but as being a kind of a positive attempt to do something different with one's life um, is incredibly powerful. It's been a pleasure learning with you again. Uh, I hope this is useful. I hope this is helpful. Um, I hope you have a frail and Purim and Shabbat Shalom. And uh, from Sameach, um, and if you are following along with any other Drisha classes, um, there will be Rabbi Silber's class on the sitter next Tuesday, but otherwise, but after that, no classes will be meeting until next Sunday. Um, and starting on starting up on Sunday evening in this same time slot, we have a new class with Dr. Sarah Zager on the topic, a set table, Jewish perspectives on household labor from the Talmud to the present. And in the meantime, I'm Samach, and I look forward to seeing you next Monday.